You know how it feels when you walk through the forest? There's that feeling of connection, there's the feeling of relaxation. A lot of that comes from what is called stochastic aspects of the natural world. There's like a randomness or kind of like shifting patterns. You could think of it almost like laying under a tree and staring at the sunlight coming through the leaves as the wind blows. It's not something that we can predict. We can't predict where the next beam of light is going to come through the tree. So what PlantWave does is it really helps to connect people more to a moment and helps people be more present. It gives us this space, instead of imagining what the next note is going to be from the plant, you just chill out and the plant is continuously doing its thing and is producing something that's a reflection of the moment. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. I'm your host, Donna Laughlin, and over the last 20 years, I've brought more than 500 companies to market with my agency, LMGPR. So I know a thing or two about a great story. On this podcast, I'll take you behind the scenes with visionaries from an array of industries and philosophies who are shaping our world and our future. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. Modern life can be isolating. We're wrapped up in our social media feeds, rushing to log into the next Zoom meeting, hurtling down the road on our metal capsules, or holed up in our houses. Being cut off from the natural world often leaves us feeling, well, disconnected from ourselves and others. There is a solution. Our guest, Joe Patitucci, has spent the last decade developing devices that connect us to nature. Joe builds on this feeling of mindfulness with PlantWave, a sensor device that taps into the biorhythms of plants and converts them into a real-time symphonic stream of music, which she calls a sonic window into the secret life of plants. Computers, music, and nature have always come together for Joe. Here's where the magic started. I grew up in Somers, New York. It's a rural area north of New York City. My parents met in the East Village back in the 70s and decided to move out into the country. So I had a really nice combination of rural country life, but then all my parents' friends were in the East Village. So I had this really like cool interaction between living in nature and then being kind of in the cultural mecca of New York and the East Village and music and jazz and all these things. In uh, when I was a kid, I would just be playing in the backyard and we had a lot of land. It was like a pretty big yard. It was a whole side of a hill. My favorite place to hang out was in a marigold tree that was on our property, build little forts, eat strawberries off of the ground, like little wild strawberries that would just grow in the backyard. So I was just this little being that would just hang out. I really loved butterflies. I remember the monarchs would do their migration. I really enjoyed that. And I remember 
fireflies and capturing a firefly and making a little home for this firefly with some grass and a little jar and some holes in it. One time I did that and the fireflies reproduced. So my whole room was like this magic zone of all these like tiny glowing orbs, like baby fireflies were just like took over my whole room. That was the last time I did that because it got a little bit out of control. So yeah, I had a really uh, blessed childhood of being able to be out there in nature. And then, you know, my parents would bring me into the city. So I'd be like the three-year-old falling asleep on my mom in the jazz club at whatever, 11 p.m. And it was pretty cool life. Are you the only child? I'm an only child, yeah. yeah. So your parents would go back from the town and country. What did your parents do for a living? My dad was a computer engineer. He worked in early the early computer industry. So he was at Digital Equipment Company, which is kind of the Google of the 60s and 70s. He also worked in artificial intelligence and optical character reading and all of like the the early AI things. And my mom was more in music and theater. So my mom comes from a long line of piano teachers. So my grandmother was a piano teacher and my great grandmother taught piano all the way through her 90s and lived to 108. So there's the the mom side is very like artistic and driven by music and my dad way more tech and like that whole line of family. My great grandfather started the first electric company in their town in Italy. So there's this like electrical engineering side of the family and there's the music side of the family that come together. And my dad is also super into jazz. So he was a stage manager for jazz musicians back in the day. And he had his own jazz magazine that he ran from the East Village. And he was just very connected in the jazz scene in the 60s. That's kind of the confluence that brings me to the world. You went through the legacy of family members, but did you personally play an instrument in school growing up? I did. I, I was. It was kind of a requirement for me to play music in my family. I wasn't really interested in it, honestly. I just wanted to play and run around. Yeah, that was something that was very important to my family. I honestly did not enjoy practicing or studying music at all as a kid. I, I even remember, you know, I was, my mom would always try to teach me to play piano and I just had so much resistance to it. I just did, was not interested in it. And even they had me play violin. They got me violin lessons and I would, I would actually just accidentally drop the bow. So I did, so I would break it and I wouldn't have to practice violin. So I, I was actually quite resistant to having to practice music. I enjoyed music, but I didn't want to, I just wasn't that interested. I did, and I played trumpet in high school and high school band and things. I, but then after that, I got my own guitar and I started playing around with that. And what I was most interested in with music was just making sound. I liked playing with effects and electronics and producing music. I was really interested in that, in, in that craft. And I was interested in writing songs and I was interested in crafting sound to serve those songs. So let's talk about university. So you're in college, you had this influence. What was it like in terms of your, what was your musical thread and 
keeping both that kind of that balance that you have, which I think is great between the jazz clubs of New York and the nature and connection. How did that thread continue to run in, through college? Yeah, the thread continued to run through playing music in bands and things. You know, when I was in high school, one of my friend's older brothers, he had a small recording studio. And back then it wasn't like you had GarageBand and all that stuff on your computers. He had an actual tape machine and his own personal recording studio. So we would experiment a lot making music and, and recording things. And I, I didn't really write songs. I didn't really write lyrics or anything, but I would, we would write music and we would play and we, we would just jam. And then into college, that's when I started to meet a lot of other people that had you know, similar musical interests. And there was like a really great supportive music scene in Philadelphia. So that's where, you know, I just met a lot of people and we would, we would be in bands and we would produce our own shows and we would do our own tours. Or I also joined a band that was pretty popular at the time, at least in, in Philadelphia. And we played South by Southwest. We played shows with bands like The Strokes, things like that. And then I've never even talked about this, but in college, Diplo actually went to, I went to school with Diplo. So we were good friends and we went to India together and we made some music there. We kind of had a, a little bit of a band there for a bit in India. And yeah, so it was just like cool. It was like people were just doing interesting things and you never knew who was, and like nobody knew anybody was going to be famous. I had no idea Diplo was going to become Diplo. But, you know, he was just like a guy that was like playing around and DJing like random high schools. So yeah, it was a cool time. I think I went through different phases in terms of the music I made. So in the beginning, I was more in what's called like shoegaze bands, like very ambient rock kind of stuff. And then I joined a band that was more almost sounded like 60s rock pop, like the Kinks or the Beatles or something like that for a bit. And then I was a bit all over the place, but but for the most part, it was kind of, yeah, it usually had an experimental sound aspect. So maybe something along the lines of like Seeger Rose or Radiohead early on. And then getting into that aspect of sound sculpting is what got me into making more ambient music. And then over time, I was exploring different ways of creating ambient music. And that's kind of what led me to making plant music. That's really cool. So... You're in college, you're doing all this cool stuff, then you get to get out in the world. And what was your first job? My first job was actually as a canvasser for an environmental group called Clean Water Action in Philadelphia. So I would go door to door and knock on people's doors and tell them about what the Bush administration was doing at that time with the Clean Water Act and all these other things and get them to sign a petition or to write their congressperson and to donate some money to allow us to keep doing that. So it was really like environmental advocacy for about two years. So yeah, that was that was like super important to me. Yeah, well, we're not done with that initiative either. We got to keep doing, keep, 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 keep it up. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. then after that, you went to the TEDx Philly. Is that the next jumping point? Yeah. In 2010, I, I volunteered for that. After a couple of years doing environmental advocacy, I took on, it was going to be a three-day temp job that turned out to 13 years working at United Way, which is a nonprofit. I started as like a, a temp doing like administrative things. And then I got into kind of the marketing side and 
that really helped me understand of how to how to market my bands or how to set up tours and how to network and do all, all these kinds of things. I definitely built up a really great community of like-minded artists and musicians in Philadelphia and around North America. And then I was invited to be music director for TEDx Philly. Yeah, that actually was like a huge watershed moment for me because that was the first time I worked with a really big team on something that was a passion project. I was used to doing that in bands and maybe like three to five people at most. But to do that on a team of like 40 people and everyone working together on a common goal and being psyched about it, it wasn't just like a day job. It was all of these people that were high level at other companies like Comcast and places like that, that were doing this for fun. And I just saw how organized it was and how well it was put together. And to be a part of that team just felt really inspiring. And that really helped to inspire me to see how I could bring my work to another level. So like you said, there was a pivot there, right? In terms of being a contributor to almost really becoming then a conductor in a sense of, right, of bringing all this together, which I think is really admirable because it just means more responsibility and work. So let's talk about Data Garden, because Data Garden came before Plant Wave. Can you walk us through that next set of milestones for you? Sure, yeah. So Plant Wave is a product of Data Garden, and I started Data Garden in 2011. It really came to be because I was releasing my own solo electronic music that was always based on walking out in nature, and I would walk around in the forest, and I would collect different sounds, and I would take those sounds and bring them back into the studio, and I would write music around it. And so that was a way of having this connection to nature expressed through me as music. I wanted to release my music in a way that was in harmony with nature. I didn't want to produce stuff. I didn't want to, you know, at this time, it was 2010, 2011, people were still consuming CDs and records were starting to become cool again and all these things. And everybody would always ask me like, oh yeah, you should release a record. And I would just think, I don't feel like producing a piece of material plastic that could outlive me on this planet and possibly outlive humanity, depending on how we use resources. So I started to think about how can I release music that's in harmony with nature? And so I came up with this idea called Data Garden, which started as a record label. And the idea was that the albums were released on these pieces of album art, these like handmade pieces of paper with seeds embedded in them. And they had a download code on the back. So you could buy an album from Data Garden and you could download the music from the download card and then you could plant that and it would grow into flowers. So I was thinking of it as like replacing record shelves with plant shelves. And, you know, if somebody's like, oh, I really like that flower. And it's like, oh yeah, cool. Let's listen to the album associated with it. And that was the original idea for Data Garden. And when... I started it, I was thinking, okay, well, what are the events going to be like when we're releasing albums? Like, are we going to do record release parties? Like, what's that look like? Well, it's not going to be some show or party in a dark club with like just a bunch of alcohol. Like it needs to be outside and it needs to be more about connecting to nature. So we launched the label with a release party called the Switched On Garden. 
which we did in 2011. And then we did another one in 2012. And that was in Bartram's Garden in Philadelphia. It's actually the oldest botanical garden in North America. There are even plants there that were planted by Ben Franklin, like brought there from other parts of the world. He would visit and he would get seeds and he would plant things at this place. So we did, uh, we put on this festival and we had live performances, but we also had these interactive installations. So we invited artists to make different interactive art pieces and sculptures in this garden that just encouraged connection to nature through technology. So that that's how we kind of started into the art world of it. But it was way more as curators than anything. So take us on a journey. It's like when people talk about Woodstock, right? Or they talk about something they saw at South or Southwest or any of the music festivals, Coachella. Take us to this event. What was the vibe? How did people respond? How did you feel? when you saw it all come together? It was total magic. I mean, this garden that we did this in, I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful place, but at that time, nobody had really gone there. It wasn't a known place by that many people. I think the biggest event they had done there was maybe like a 125 person wedding. And it's in Southwest Philadelphia, which at that time was pretty dangerous or ha- there was just a lot of crime there. A- and it wasn't, you know, it was kind of isolated. So it wasn't a place that people knew about or would go to. But we built this whole campaign around like, oh, bike to Bartrams. And like we did this whole fun campaign to drive people to feeling good about going there. And we made bike maps and we put them all over the city and got bike racks so that people would be able to park. And we thought like, oh, wow, like maybe we can get like 200 people there. And I think like 600 people showed up. And so it was like four times bigger than anything they had done. And so the way it worked is that It was free and you show up and we give you a map and this map has all these different, it shows you the whole place and it it has all these different little installations that you can go and explore. There's no specific entryway for you to go through this. There's no order to the experience. So it was really this cool way of like, just imagine yourself going to this really magical garden and then just wandering your way around, everyone's going kind of different directions, weaving their way through this. So there are all these like beautiful chance interactions that would happen. And the garden that was closest to the entrance had all these circuit bent children's toys that you could go and play with. And then there were some other things where there were sensors in trees that would sense you moving and make music based on that and different visuals. And then we had this really cool light performance in a meadow as it got dark. And it was just this really beautiful day. It was very family friendly. It was all it was all ages. So it went from like two to eight. And so you had just like families hanging out and there was free beer and like and there was free ice cream and people were just having a really nice, lovely time there. Just sounds magical. I mean, it's just like thinking about when you described your childhood as well. It's like like an adult childhood version of what you were doing out in nature in the field, which is quite angelic. How did that then lead to Plant Wave? Yeah. So 
that first switch on garden was super successful. All, it got a lot of attention of arts organizations. Philadelphia has a lot of art institutions and art foundations, like the Pew Foundation for Arts and Culture. And so these kinds of institutions were just wondering, like, how the heck did these like no-name artist kids just make this Philadelphia heritage site, like the coolest place in town. Like how the heck did they do that? So then we started to get these consulting gigs to make cool things happen at art institutions. And we were invited to do something at the Philadelphia Museum of Art in 2012. And so we were thinking, okay, what are we going to do? Do we set up like a pop-up record store in this zone or what are we going to do? And it it was during the Van Gogh exhibit at the time too. So it was like a, it was a super busy time. And we had a lot of interest in the history of electronic music and the history of biofeedback art. Data Garden wasn't just a record label. It was really a blog that also happened to sell music. But it was really a culture blog about electronic music, art, and technology related to plants. So we had been interested in books like The Secret Life of Plants, where there are all these different experiments being done around plant consciousness and seeing how plants respond to different things. And then I was also super into Brian Eno and his the history of generative music and art, where you're taking these simple rule sets and over time, very simple rule sets can result in very complex forms. So I was, we were kind of synthesizing all of this stuff. So it was like, okay, like, what do we do here? I don't know, record store? That seems kind of just stock. Like what, oh, wait a second. Okay, these people were hooking up plants to electronic equipment to see if they, if they're conscious. Okay, and then Brian Eno is using these, inputs to make different sounds or generative music. And it's like, oh, what if we took the sensory input of a plant and used the wave from a plant and actually translated that into pitch and then had that play instruments? So that was when things got interesting and we were like, okay, cool. Let's make our own art installation at the Philadelphia Museum of Art and make this chill out room where all the music is being played by plants. And so that was the idea. And so we did this performance installation called Data Garden Quartet. You can actually hear there's an album that we recorded of that. It's on Spotify and all all the platforms. And yeah, it was up for like three days and people were just hanging out in there listening to plants. Welcome to a special exhibition recording of Data Garden Quartet recorded live at the Philadelphia Museum of Art on April 13th, 315th, 2012. To produce this recording, electronic sensors were placed on plant leaves to measure conductive biorhythms in real time. These fluctuating rhythms were translated into data, allowing each plant to play a range of notes and textures assembled by a sound designer. At times, museum goers affected the compositions by touching and interacting with the plants. 
combination of these dynamic interactions between plants, humans, and technology have resulted in this recording. So that was pretty phenomenal. So how did you turn that into now I have a I got a business, like a real model for success? I had no idea at all. And I still thought my company was a record label. So for me, you know, starting a company as a record label, there are like real musicians that are on the label. And I felt like I had a duty to them to make sure that they're being taken care of and that we're selling their music. So I thought of the plant music as almost like a Trojan horse to get the bands on my label gigs so that museums would hit us up and, and be like, hey, we really want a plant music installation. And I would be thinking like, cool, we're going to get my bands that are on my label a good gig. So we're taking care of that. I wasn't thinking at all about like my own artistic practice. And it, it just, it took a few years for people to just be like, dude, you should just do this and stop doing the record label. So it took till like 2015. And it was these very bands I was trying to get like high price gigs that were just telling me just you you found something here. Just do it. Take it all the way. You know, sometimes the best opportunities are these happy accidents. So it sounds like there's a period that it was just all kind of forming, kind of oscillating together. And a little bit, you mentioned your father was really early on in computer science and artificial intelligence. In some way, you're kind of creating this new level of music intelligence and bringing it to the table. When did you realize, okay, so plant wave, this is it. This is the future yeah, 2015 is where we started to focus more on plant music and we we're getting hired to do gigs at museums and festivals all over the place. So that was really taking off and there was more and more demand for other artists wanted to have the same hardware that we were using. So we ended up making this product called MIDI Sprout, which was a way of taking plant data and translating it into MIDI, which is like a... It's, it's a musical language for computers. And that's still kind of like the base of what PlantWave is built on top of. But this early thing was a, really a tool for musicians and artists and nerds and coders and people. And that just, that kept getting popular. And I just remember there was this point at which I was getting so many gigs lined up that I remember having to tell my uh, boss, like, I think I have to take like three months off work or I have to work remotely for the next three months so I can do all these things. I was getting, I got invited to do this really cool thing in Los Angeles and I was working with one of my heroes, Laraji, who's an amazing ambient artist who also worked with Brian Eno. And so it just became really clear that, okay, I have to take this leap and go for it. So that was probably around 2016. And I owned a house then and stuff. And then starting in the summer of 2016, I worked my job half time and I was remote for the whole year. I was, this is like before people were doing remote work, but I would just like literally, I would be working on a new website for this like huge organization. I'd be on a call and they're like, where are you? I'm like, oh, I'm in Bali, you know, or like, where are you this week? It's like, oh, I'm in Santiago, Chile. Oh, where, you know, where are you this week? And 
Oh, I'm actually just like in the park, like a couple blocks away. I'll see you in a little bit. So it's like this really fun year where I was working halftime on that and I was feeling really effective in my day job and really psyched. And then I was also working halftime on my, on my passion and making content around the world as I was doing this. So yeah, that's kind of how that works. So let's talk, I really want to get into and break it down so everyone understands plant wave. You turn a plant's biorhythms into music. I love plants, but I really want to understand, could you describe what plant wave actually can do? Break it down for us, what it is. Sure. Yeah. So what plant wave does is you take these two electrical sensors and you place them on a plant's leaves. And what we're doing is we're measuring how much connection there is between the two points in the plant where you're placing the sensors. So that connection between those two points is varying over time based on the plant moving water around through its system as it's photosynthesizing. So that variation is graphed as a wave and then we translate the wave into pitch. So like any, any note is a, is a wave, right? So then we take those pitch messages and we route those to instruments that we design so that every single note you hear is an expression of what's happening in the plant. And then the end user can select what instruments that plant is playing. It's, it's almost like if you gave a cat like a piano where everything was in key and it like walked on the keys and made music. What you're getting to see is that the plant is a very, it's very alive, of course, it's a living being, but it's very active throughout the day. And you can start to notice these patterns and these shifts that happen in the music of plants like throughout the day. So ferns versus monstera, I mean, are there each have their different different ways or is it the environment also plays an impact succulents versus cacti what do they do they each bring something different yeah all of the above so not only is every plant going to produce a different pattern even different leaves within the same plant will produce different patterns so it's not the type of thing where you could hear the music and say, oh, that's a philodendron or that's a monstera or that's a snake plant. But what happens is as you're listening to a plant over time, you can start to notice these really cool patterns or shifts that happen. Or maybe you try these two leaves and then you're like, okay, that sounds like this. And that, maybe th there's not that much activity between these two leaves. So it's maybe just playing one or two notes, but then you switch over to like five leaves over and you're getting this whole symphony happening. And so you can, you can hear that there's a lot more activity between those two points than the two points you started with previously. So, I mean, there's long been discussions about the forest and various fungi and communicating, you know, within the forest. I mean, it's similar in theory to, to that, right? Because they're also biorhythmically connecting with each other. I mean, it's, is that, am I off or is, or is that similar? Yeah, I mean, if there's a lot of research being done right now on what Suzanne Simard calls the wood wide web, which is the fungal network in the forest that trees use to exchange nutrients. Yeah, it's really, it's becoming more and more clear how active plants are and how much they're interacting with each other. 
So this is a way of highlighting that and giving us this way of monitoring that. It's almost like if you think of a weather map, it's not like clouds are green and red and orange. And in the same way, like a plant doesn't sound like an angel or a flute, but we can use these different instruments to allow ourselves to receive this information that the plants are producing. Hey there, it's Donna. I want to invite you to go check out some of our past conversations with game changers and innovators who are shaping our future. Like David Buka, founder and CEO of Change Foods and former aerospace engineer who's working to solve what he calls the cheese problem by using microbes and fermentation to create dairy-free cheeses and foods. We're not necessarily trying to stop cheese making and stop the wonderful traditions of these cultural empires like France and Italy and all these European cheesemakers, which they've established for centuries, but rather let's work with them to recreate cheese, but just using different inputs and bringing it to the 21st century. So I love that idea of actually not necessarily stopping beautiful traditions, but rather working with them and just revolutionizing them in a different way. I learned something, actually a lot of somethings, every time I talk to a new guest. They're pioneers. They're thought leaders in their fields. They all have inspiring stories to tell, and I share them with you every week. So if you're enjoying these episodes, please hit subscribe and join me for more stories about the moments before it happened. So in the pandemic, there was this massive surge of people with houseplants. And I read in the the Garden Pal, it was an article that said, you know, that seven out of 10 millennials are now plant parents. And that was one of the ways that they got through the pandemic and kind of coping. And also said there's like 15 minutes a day, which is not very much, right? It's a good healthy regime is with with your plant reduces your stress, but also improves your productivity. So if you're in the pandemic and you're working at home and you have plants, then your environment immediately is much more pleasant. So I don't know, prior to the pandemic, did we lose touch with plants and then it just came back? Or the this younger generation just now has realized like, oh, maybe these are always here the way I was thinking last night. And I, now I just have an appreciation for them. What do you see? Yeah, my view on it is that there is... I think our society in general, over the last 150 plus years, since the Industrial Revolution, we have continued to disconnect ourselves from nature as if we are separate from it. And so my view on this is that we are part of the Earth, like we're made of Earth stuff. We evolved from Earth things. We spent most of our time in human history without shoes on and always with a direct connection to soil and everything. So to me, we've had a lot of stressors that we have added into the mix in a way that is a bit disconnected from actual our source energy. You know, we've reached a tipping point, in my opinion. I mean, people are on so many meds and things these days, and it's I feel like a lot of people that feels really necessary for them. And I feel like a lot of that is because our environment is kind of toxic to people being allowed to feel themselves. So maybe if we just all got reconnected with PlantWave is one of those ways to do that. What are the benefits for people with PlantWave? 
Yeah, the benefits for people, you know how it feels when you walk through the forest. Like there's that feeling of connection, there's a feeling of relaxation. A lot of that comes from what is called stochastic aspects of the natural world. There's like a randomness or kind of like shifting patterns. You could think of it almost like laying under a tree and staring at the sunlight coming through the leaves as the wind blows. That in itself is an experience because it's not something that we can predict. We can't predict where the next beam of light is going to come through the tree. And to do that would be just completely futile. So it gives us this space, instead of like imagining what the next note is going to be from the plant, you just chill out and the plant is continuously doing its thing and is producing something that's novel, that's a reflection of the moment. So what PlantWave does is it really helps to connect people more to a moment and helps people be more present. And that's associated in a lot of studies with things like stress reduction, just like better relating with people. So that's, I mean, that's what I've experienced as well. But, you know, our users report feeling more relaxed, connected and inspired after listening with PlantWave. So what are the benefits for plants? I mean, do they grow better? Do they? Is there an environmental component? Because you, you talk about you know this orchestration that they kind of work in symphonic ways. But what's the benefit for plants? That's a great question. In terms of plants and, and how they benefit with plant wave, I think that a plant that is connected to a plant wave is naturally going to get more attention than the other plants. And I've seen, I've just noticed in my own life that the plants I have connected to PlantWave are the ones that thrive the most. Now, is that because there's something specifically about PlantWave that helps their growth? Or is it because I'm paying more attention to them? I don't know. There are studies out there that do show that light electrical stimulation of plants does encourage their growth and health. And that is what we're doing. We're sending like three volts. It'd basically be like two, two double A batteries. Like if you touch two double A batteries, you don't feel it, but the, it actually is enough voltage to get readings from the plant. So it could be that we are helping to stimulate their growth and that in a way, I mean, they feed off of light, right? So if we're sending some electricity through them, we might be actually feeding them in some ways. So you talked about these amazing events, which I wish I was part of. Are you doing pop-ups, plant wave meetups, or is it just within the Spotify and other shared communities where people can collectively come together? We do some events here and there. We, we actually have a permanent installation in Boston, Massachusetts of four trees. It's called Singing Trees. It's in Harbor Way in Boston. It's between the Convention Center and the Institute of Contemporary Art. So there's a, we have a whole park where people are going from all over the world to just go and visit and listen to these trees. And we haven't done as many events over the last few years since the pandemic, but we're looking at doing some, some things later this year and into early, early next year, hopefully something at South by Southwest. And the beauty of PlantWave is that you don't need to come to an event. You can just get a plant wave and have the experience at home. You can share that with your friends. You can just turn on a plant wave, have a conversation, hear the music shifting as you're like hitting moments of inspiration and like kind of use that as a prompt to dive into deeper things. It's like a fun exploratory tool. So if there was one plant wave song, kind of like We Are the World, if there was one song that you would want the world to hear, 
what would it be? To me, the one song I'd want someone to hear is just the song of the plant that's closest to them in that moment. To me, it's not about a recording. It's not about there being this this one thing. It's it's about every moment is special and it's really about the value of presence. So the song I want to share with people is the song of the moment that they are in, in any given time. That's the song we all most need, I think. And so that's what I'd be most excited to share. Want to check out PlantWave in real time? You can listen to Joe's plant singing at his streaming platform, plants.fm. You can also pre-order the product on his website at plantwave.com. Visit the show notes for links, videos, and more. Thank you for listening. Follow Before Happen on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Before Happen is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. And all episodes are written and developed by Susanna Camp with additional editing and music provided by Noda Labs.